0: Welcome to Water Cooler Live, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in the uh, broom cupboard of our global headquarters here in the the centre of Sydney. I'm Nick Cato. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and I present this show every week. It's the moment in the week actually when we satiate our our appetite for good ideas by inviting clever people on the programme to talk about various issues. And also I think one of the important things we do here is test out our own ideas so that we can protect ourselves against that dreadful intellectual virus, groupthink. Uh, but anyway, look, welcome to Cooler Life. It's free incidentally, you've probably picked that up already. But don't let that stop you subscribing to the mentis Research Center for just $10 a month. We'll be telling you how you can do that later on. And we'll also be telling you about the benefits that come from that, including the chance to uh, join us for Watercooler Live, Extra time from next week, we hope. Don't hold me to that. We've still got to get the technology right. Um, later on, we'll be joined by Bjorn Lomborg, uh, who many of you will know through his writing in the Australian and elsewhere. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus and one of the soundest and most rational voices on climate change and other great issues that face us. I'll be asking you about that. I'll be asking you about coronavirus too. And it's the 50th anniversary, would you believe, of the official birth of the Deep Green Movement. That was Earth Day back in uh, 1970. I remember it well. Um, Also, we'll be joined by uh, Pat Sparrow. Pat Sparrow is the CEO of the Aged and Community Services Australia. And and I'll be asking her about how it is that we've been doing relatively so well in nursing homes. We've had a couple of bad outbreaks and, and we've we passed on our community and, and sympathies to everybody who's lost loved ones. But it's a very small number compared to overseas. We've actually done very well. And that's a story you won't hear on the ABC, incidentally, uh, for various reasons. The pattern will be coming up later. But, but first of all, to where this whole thing started, and let's not forget where this thing came from, uh, from China and, uh, and China's uh, behavior, I think, China's reaction and the way it's been behaving since it unleashed or since this virus was unleashed on the on the world has been I think to put it mildly odd. Uh, odd. Uh, so joining me uh, to discuss this is uh, somebody who is I think one of to me one of the most uh, knowledgeable and, 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 and well-known and, and rational people on this subject John Lee. John Lee is a researcher for the Hudson Institute he also Uh, works for the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney and John's joining me on the line from Sydney. John, welcome to Water Call Live.
1: Good evening Nick, thanks for having me and uh, thank you for everyone for joining
0: on. John, I I described there in the introduction that China's behaviour towards the virus just seems a little odd. I mean if it was genuinely uh, you know something that had just come up, it was a, a public health uh, emergency that had happened presumably by by accident, you know, as they say in a wet market. But if it had just happened that way, if it was just a virus that broke out, you would have thought they would have reacted a lot sooner to uh, alerting the Western world. Uh, and yet it was a long time, wasn't it, before they, they, uh, they stopped their, their, you know, they were complaining that Australia was being preemptory and, and, uh, in, 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 in stopping flights from China, and yet there was this virus raging. Tell me, how, how have you seen this in general? Well, that's correct. The Communist
1: Party knew for at least three weeks that the virus was able to be transmitted from person to person, and they knew how lethal it was. Uh, but they didn't tell the world, given they put parts of their population in lockdown. And as you mentioned, they uh, they, they were annoyed at Australia and the United States for closing, uh, stopping flights to China. but. Why do I think they are so defensive about it? Because this is not just an accident out of carelessness. The reason why a virus got out was, goes to the very heart of the um, Chinese Communist Party system. That is, they prioritise uh, regime security and regime prestige uh, over what was a very serious health outcome. They don't want the world to know that, or they don't want the world to talk about that. But the madder they behave, the, the more angry they behave, the more determined other uh, countries will be to get to the bottom
0: of it. Yeah, I mean, they pretty much locked down uh, Hubei province and Wuhan in early January. And yet we still had flights of tourists arriving here from Wuhan around about that point. And, and uh, one flight uh, which brought five cases of coronavirus. Luckily, there was no that we know of that wasn't passed on to anybody else. but. You know, it, it it's not it it it. They didn't look. They didn't react promptly or immediately enough for my money. And um, you know, but it's odd that they're now lecturing us, aren't they, about about our our comments, our call for an international inquiry into this. They they think that's somehow odd. I don't I don't know why. Why are they so edgy about having an international inquiry in there?
1: Well, I think they realise it's a thin, thin end of the wedge because if there is an international inquiry it will go to the heart of how China is governed um, and how its institutions work or do not work. Now, if that occurs, China's standing in the world is seriously affected. Um, Remember that China is not now just trying to grow more powerful and, and, and more wealthy. It is now trying to emerge or even replace the United States as a global leader in some respects, now, if we start asking questions or calling to questions the very worthiness of their institutions, their governance arrangements, well, that's a serious blow to the
2: Chinese.
0: John, I think, like so many of the issues that are becoming apparent now uh, through the coronavirus, this one is something that had started beforehand. I mean, it was quite clear, I think, to to you, I'm sure that, uh, uh, and anybody who had been watching this, that our relationship with China was not on the best of terms. There was tension there, wasn't there? I mean, what, What's the history of this?
1: Well, there, there has been tension because, uh, un- particularly under Xi Jinping uh, since 2012, China is not merely content to um, seek its own way in the world. It now increasingly wants to define how the world is governed, the economic rules of the world, um, the strategic balance in a region and and, and, and beyond. So it's it's not that we can actually avoid a clashing of heads with China. Uh, China wants certain things that is unacceptable to us and many other countries that preceded COVID-19. As you mentioned, COVID-19 has made things worse. But I think the one thing COVID-19 has done is that before then, outside a few politicians and a few strategic types, there was this idea that we don't really like China's system, but it's really none of our business because of COVID-19, now we, uh, it's, we have to squarely confront that China's governing institutions is what has led the world to this disaster uh, in the first place.
0: Uh, under John Howard, of course, he very successfully, I think, maintained uh, generally good relations with China uh, during that period. And, and and his his approach was to say, well, look, we'll, we'll park these issues of human rights and style of governance over there, uh, we, we don't like them. But we'll, we'll raise them when we can. Uh, but we're, you know, the most important thing is that we continue to trade with them. We continue to have friendly diplomatic relations, even, even of course, uh, military cooperation to some extent and joint, joint training. Uh, and, and that seemed to be working at the time. But uh, I wonder whether, whether things have gone past that now. Something has changed in China with Xi Jinping uh, and just China growing generally more more strong and more confident. You, you, how do you see that
1: Well, for a start, uh power matters, and China wasn't as powerful during John Howard's time uh, as it is now. You know remember all the Taiwan Straits crisis in I think nineteen ninety six and all the Americans had to do was send an aircraft carrier and the Chinese back down. Now that situation doesn't exist anymore but china it china doesn't hasn't necessarily changed its objectives, but it has become a lot more. Uh, a bold or emboldened. In, under Xi Jinping, it's taking a lot more risk. And I would say for the last 10 years, China has pushed the envelope because it hasn't met with much resistance. Uh, you know, like him or loaf him, it's really only since the Trump administration where uh, America has tried to meaningfully push back against the Chinese. That has caused frictions that were beneath the surface to, to rise above the surface. But that's not a bad thing because that is the true state of, the, of affairs um, and it puts choices in front of countries like Australia.
0: Yeah, there has uh, been a noticeable shift under, under Trump, I think. You know, Mike Pence, I think, gave a, a quite robust speech quite early on, didn't he, about um, telling some home truths, I thought, about China. Did, did, how, how does that play out? Does that actually make things worse or better for the United States and the rest of us?
1: Well, my observation, having worked with some politicians, is that temperament matters because temperament signals to other countries what, um, what you are prepared or not prepared to do. You can have the best policies in the world, but if you're not prepared to confront or take risks, countries tend to dismiss you. In a case of the Trump administration, yes, it has demonstrated to China that it is prepared to meaningfully push back and, and wear the cost of doing so, I actually think that's been a positive thing because it's caused China to recalculate some aspects of its behaviour. It's still early days, but you saw the trade frictions between the United States and China. Almost every expert said, oh, China will win these hands down because the authoritarian countries are always more resilient. Well, that's not actually the case. I mean, uh, Donald Trump was winning the trade war in, in, in these early stages.
0: What did you make of the comments by the Chinese ambassador this week where he got quite uh, bellicose, I suppose, and, and, uh, you know, started uh, quite openly threatening uh, trade sanctions with Australia in a sense, you know, he was going to, you know, he thought that uh, the, the, the tourism uh, um, uh, education, they were two of the things he, he singled out. How should we react to that?
1: Well, China finds uh Australia, particularly the the last few coalition governments, very troublesome because we have led the way on banning Huawei. We've led the way on foreign interference. And despite the -the behind-the-scenes pressure uh, which the Chinese placed on us, Australia didn't turn. Australia held its ground. My interpretation of what the ambassador is doing, and he would have been under orders from Beijing to do this, he's now almost appealing to business groups in Australia to lobby the Australian government to step back from inquiry specifically and confronting China more broadly, uh, There might have been a time where that would have worked. But COVID nineteen, I think, has changed many mindsets, and, and I think it's backfired quite spectacularly on China.
0: Yeah, that's 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 an interesting point, John. I mean, we we have been um, looking at China in a serious way, I suppose, for 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 the last two to three years, recognizing the change nature of China and, and therefore the changing relationship which we've got to adapt to a much more assertive China quite aggressive in some senses and and uh, you know sort of pushing the boundaries of sovereignty in 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 the, in, the, in some of the activities they carry out on our shores particularly towards uh, their own students but um, the business community was always pretty solid right or at least that sector of the business community that traded with China the universities mining companies um, some companies like uh, like uh, caterpillar for instance you know the big uh, uh, who have you know, trade with china you think that's changing you think that there's a bit of realism coming in at, at uh, that level too
1: it has because if you're running a business and global the globalized world is humming along your profits are great the chinese market is booming you know Intellectually, you may acknowledge uh, concerns about the Chinese system, but psychologically, why would you change strategy or change direction? There's just no incentive to do so. As everyone knows, change and reassessment is much more likely during the downturn, which is what we're going through now. Um, and you're, you're now hearing uh, business groups and businesses talking openly about the need for diversification. Now, they may not really care about the strategic issues that I care about and that you care about, but for them, they've seen the consequence and the disruption of the Chinese system affect the bottom line. So I do expect the business uh, communities, often for different reasons, uh, to reassess their relationship with China.
0: Uh, Education, let's talk about higher education. Now, um, I think one in three Overseas, or one in three undergraduates enrolled at the University of Sydney this year, I believe, was um, from mainland China. Similar figures, not quite as high, at the University of Melbourne, and right across the group of eight, because the Chinese students favour the group of eight. Huge numbers, high numbers, uh, but because this, they've al- already we've seen just with the effects of the COVID virus that you know people haven't been able to travel, and and they've lost uh, you know students this year. And this could multiply, of course. I suppose the question is, and you, 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 know, you work in the university sector, you're involved in it. Have the universities been a little bit naive? Have they been too slow to uh, try and balance this, this against some other form of income? And what, what's your impression? Uh,
1: we have to remember that if you look at the G8 universities, particularly Sydney, Melbourne, et cetera, um, it has only been the last four years or so where there's been a massive uptake. Of positions by Chinese students. And I think they've committed the business sin of assuming that the past will reflect the future. So they've been planning for these rivers of gold to continue to flow um, and, and spending accordingly or, or investing accordingly. Um, there are a couple of issues. One, I don't think there are there is any other market or uh, country that can replace China in terms of the number of students that we can get in our universities. But I think the issue is more about the sustainability of the tertiary system. Should these universities have, been, have become so reliant on international students to fund their basic operations and capital investments? And I think we all know the answer is no. So um, COVID-19 has given that um, reality a, 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 well, it's, it's brought into focus that reality. I think universities now will have to undertake risk assessments and become far more prudent with their budgets in a way that any um, financial entity has to.
0: One thing I've noticed while, you know, the, the whole, the journalistic community in America seemingly has been just obsessing about Donald Trump's Twitter account, because China is not wasting this crisis, right? You can see, um, the way that they're using it to put pressure on hong kong now there've been a series of arrests there in, the, in the recent weeks of pro democracy demonstrators uh, you know this continual pressure on the chinese on the hong kong administration you know to clamp down on these people seems to be china's going out of its way now to ensure that the pro democracy rallies uh, don't start once they come out of lockdown you've been following that situation how do you see that I-
1: I, I have. I mean, as you say, um, they've pushed pushed the envelope in Hong Kong. They've done the same in the South China Sea. They obviously can see that the other major powers, uh, United States in particular, is distracted. But I'm not quite sure that um, this, this will be to China's enduring advantage because if you spend any time in the United States, for example, this, this is just deepening the resentment that was already there Um, I I, I don't expect this administration, or if there's a Biden one, I don't expect any American administration after this pandemic passes to want to calm things down. I I think the resentment uh, in observing what China's trying to achieve while everyone else is struggling uh, is is quite palpable and profound.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it's unreasonable of Donald Trump to to emphasise the role of China. I mean, of course, the domestic... Press corps will always take the view that he's doing this for some nefarious reason, but it seems to me that we, you know, we have to bring home who, where this this virus came from because at some point we've just got to call it out, right? I, I think that yeah. unless you do that, you know, you just get more more of the same from China, and it never stops.
1: Well, imagine if the pandemic passes and no one talks about China's role in it. You would have China continuing to try to advance its. Uh, leadership in international institutions. You would have China trying to convince other countries that its governance model was superior to that of the West. Now, if if there isn't any open investigation discussion of China's uh, failings and culpabilities, China will simply win uh, the post-COVID world, uh, um, and and that's something that that cannot be allowed to occur. Oh,
0: come on now, now it's time for some. Predictions: uh, How you see this playing out now? Will, will China come out stronger or weaker from this? Will the relationship be be better or worse? Um, and if there's, you know, this rising tension, at what point does it come to something more brutal than just the exchanging of harsh words?
1: I, I I cannot see China coming out of this well, in a sense that. Its relationship with the United States is close to irreparable. Uh, its relationship with Europe has deteriorated, its relationship with all most other American allies um, have, have worsened. Now, but then the question still remains: you know, what, what does the United States in particular do? Will the United States, for example, in um, in, in acting on its anger and resentment, will it do so constructively or will it do so in a way that will uh, lose itself friends? Um, that's where I think Australia has an important role to play. I think the Morrison government calling for an inquiry, it's not doesn't make just good moral sense. My reading is what the Morrison government is trying to do is get other countries and international institutions to respond um and, and to allocate blame where blame should lie and to ensure that this doesn't occur again. That's essentially a, a very internationalist and constructive view of the world, in my view. Um and that's hopefully the direction that the Americans can be taken.
0: You you're a you're an you were an advisor to Julie Bishop as Foreign Minister. Um what would what would be, if you were an advisor to Maurice Payne, our Foreign Minister now, what would be your the tenor of your advice to her?
1: The tenure of
0: my advice is that, um,
1: that well, I, first of all, I think they've done a pretty good job with, uh, in calling for this inquiry. If you look at the logics inquiry, you know, it's very unlikely that China will allow any genuine international inquiry to occur because it just it would lead them to expose. But that doesn't really matter. If you can force China to justify why it wants to deny an inquiry, if you can force other countries to join with you to demand an inquiry, even if one doesn't happen, um, that leaves you in a better position in a post-COVID world to try to restructure the way global institutions and various other things work. Now, if you just did nothing, um, if, if you did, for example, what Europe is doing, which is that you feel pretty angry about things, but you don't really want to speak out, then what will tend to happen is that the pandemic will pass and we, tend, we will tend to return to things, uh, business, it will, it will be business as usual uh, as, as it was before. Now, I don't think that is a good outcome um, for, for Australia or the rest of the world.
0: Well, thank you for joining us, John, and uh, we look forward to hearing your wisdom again, I think, on Water Cooler Live. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, what Live is free, as I said at the start. We're going to—it's uh, been really going uh, wonderfully well, uh, uh, and I hope you're enjoying it half as much as we are because it's—it's it's really got a buzz to us. And I know this has been picked up from the reaction we've had that it's a—you know—it's something we should have done before this crisis is to find these new ways of communicating and having discussions. So, welcome! Thank you for joining us, and don't forget you can subscribe for just ten dollars. A month we'll be talking more about that uh, soon, but first of all, it's, let's bring this COVID-19 debate back on shore, if you like. And uh, I, I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago about the aged care sector, because I looked at uh, what was happening in, in the United States, in, in Britain, in just about any other country uh, you know, enormous numbers of deaths in aged care, homes and community. So uh, you know, we're talking about 10,000. In America, that's 10,000 deaths in community care, in aged care homes. Uh, 4,000, I think the latest figure in Britain. Uh, numbers in that order, are even larger, in Spain and Italy. And yet, in Australia, we've had, sadly, two uh, particularly bad outbreaks in Sydney. One of which is still playing out. But the, the death toll, I think, when I when I looked earlier this evening, was 19. Uh, and yet, there's, you know, we're probably. You're talking about six figures around the rest of the world. So to explain why Australia seems to have done so much better than the rest of the world in this particular area, uh, I've joined, I'm being joined by Pat Sparrow, who is the CEO of the Aged uh, and Community Services Australia organisation, who um, takes a very sharp uh, look at this. Uh, Pat, well, welcome for joining me. Answer that question for me. Why are we apparently doing better?
3: Thanks for inviting me along and hello to everyone who's um, at the water cooler tonight. Um, We think that Australia's done better for two reasons. One is because um, the government has actually taken good steps and managed to flatten the curve, so keep it out of the community, but also aged care providers have been very focused on making sure that they are keeping their residents safe and well. Uh, So the government had put out some guidelines that restricted visitation. Many aged care providers actually went further and went into what they call preventative lockdown. Um, Aged care providers every year when there's infectious disease outbreaks manage those well, uh, so they have good infection control, and they were on that early. So I think there's been a number of factors which means that we've had a better better outcome. Um, Sadly, we haven't been able to keep it out at all, and, and as you said earlier, our thoughts are with all of the families and, and loved ones of the people who have passed away. It's interesting when you talk about the overseas numbers. Many of the overseas countries were not counting the deaths of people in aged care for some time, so we don't really know how many people we've lost worldwide. Uh, fortunately, in Australia, we have been um, have been counting the numbers, so we know it was nineteen at three o'clock this afternoon. Unfortunately, I think it's not finished in New March, so we might see that higher. But providers are working really hard on infection control, managing visitation, uh, working with staff and making sure that we keep it out of facilities as much as we can.
0: Mm. Well, one thing we do know, of course, is as far as targets, uh, particularly badly, people, people who are elderly and anybody who has a condition, which means their immune system is somehow mm. uh, depleted. Um, and We calculated using some figures from overseas that if you, if you prevent somebody over 70 from catching uh, this virus, you are 20 times more likely to be saving a life than if you present a back, prevent a 35 year old backpacker on Bondi Beach from, from saving it. So it just seemed to me we do need to have strong protection in place for these aged care homes and indeed um, people, uh, aged people at home. You, we seem to have that quite strong protection, don't we? In fact, stronger than, than even the Prime Minister was suggesting we should have the other day.
3: Yeah, look, we absolutely, we absolutely do because we know that the people in our residential care facilities are actually some of the most vulnerable people in the community to COVID. Um, so yes, a number of our, um, I mean, the, the government's guidelines require us to uh, limit visits. You can't come in if you're under 16, you can't come in if you haven't had a flu vaccination. You can only come in for short periods of time. Some providers made a what was a really difficult decision for them that they felt the best way they could protect people was actually to go into what we call a preventative lockdown, which is effectively to say that we don't have visitors at all. Um, while they've been doing that, um, they've been making sure they can facilitate if someone's sadly at the end of their life, they've been facilitating those visits. Um, and they've also been um, trying to support people who've got dementia, who can be agitated and can... Refused, and where it's been good for families to come in they've done that otherwise um as you were saying we've all got better at using these technologies they've been focusing on how to keep their residents connected mm-hmm.
0: uh, pat um you, you this isn't i mean you, there's a procedure in place isn't there i think which which uh, it, it comes in every time there's a bad epidemic usually of, and uh, uh, this isn't something healthcare. that we've had to learn from scratch is it that the, the aged care sector had a routine in place
3: Yes, every year we have flu outbreaks or gastro outbreaks and providers are very well skilled at, um, lock, you know, doing lockdowns and infection control. So they, were, they, they put all of those places, um, uh, things into place before it got really bad um, uh, until we saw the peak in Australia. So they were already rolling out their pandemic plans, making sure their infection.
0: I've lost your sound there a bit. Um, how are we going with that? james I'll wait for you to to get see if we can get pat re established on the line um are you interesting in this that that uh, we we have a royal commission are you back with yeah, us Pat sorry. I was just going to talk about the the royal commission um so we had a royal commission called into the aged care uh sector we did. i think a lot of the pressure for that was from uh came after the a b c had screened, i think two four corners documentaries in which they were saying that it was a very badly regulated system here it was worse than the rest of the world there were systemic problems all over the place now I I don't doubt that there are issues and problems in the aged care sector I mean there's what 2,600 residential homes or something in that order that's Uh, right
3: 200,000 people in residential aged care at at any one time many more people are supported uh, living at home so overall the industry supports about 1.3 million people and the majority of those are people that we're caring for at home
0: so it's not going to be hard for a journalist and it's a difficult time of your life right when you're aged i mean life is not fun sometimes i guess Uh, uh, so you know there are difficulties you, you you have to cope with so it's not going to be hard for a diligent abc journalist to go and find enough examples to fill a, a 45 minute documentary. And yet no. they're gone. Yeah,
3: no, I was just gonna say, and look, as you said, I mean, we also, where a peak body for not-for-profit aged care providers, um, some of the cases that came out in Four Corners were appalling. Um, not things that uh, most of our members would um, support, don't support abuse of older people. So we were also distressed by the reports in Four Corners. But we do think that the majority of care that's provided is of a good standard. Um, And we've uh, cooperated fully with the Royal Commission. We've talked about what some of the failings are and we've talked about, um, as said, there's no excuse for abuse. But we've also seen through the Royal Commission discussion some of the issues that have come out that are actually related to things like interface issues between aged care and the health system. Uh, some of the issues are related to the funding that we receive, uh, not being enough to deliver what the community expects us to deliver. So we've sort of embraced the Royal Commission as an opportunity to have some of these discussions that are actually quite difficult community discussions to have, and that we haven't wanted to have in the past. So we're trying to make it a, a positive and focusing on how we can get a better system for the people we care for.
0: Yeah, and yeah, yeah, the, the, commission, the Commission has gone into recession. Uh, uh, recession, is that the word? Recess. It's in recess. Yeah. It's in recess. Yeah, the commission is in recess uh, right now, uh, because during the virus, and it's going to come back and carry on. I would have thought it was time for them to have a strong look at what has been happening while they've been away. And they've actually, and then, just,
3: they've actually just called for submissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yesterday, they've put out a call for submissions specifically on the impacts of COVID and how the aged care sector's responded.
0: Now that's terrific, because... You know, one of the big allegations or the the claims that was made at the end of those Four Corners documentaries was that we have a very poorly regulated system, that the system's broken, that uh, there are private operators out there just out to make a buck and don't care about, you know, the health and welfare of the people who they care for. I would have thought that's pretty comprehensively, certainly at at an umbrella level it's been pretty comprehensively proved to be incorrect. I mean, Surely the regulation's been working brilliantly on this particular
3: Well, issue. I think, you know, we're seeing stories of when the regulator comes in and they find a problem and we see that reported, that's actually a sign of a regulatory system that's working. Um, the regulatory system was strengthened a few years ago and I think, you know, that should give people, you know, more confidence. Um, but there are some issues that we need to address and that we need to talk about as a community that will make the system even better. I think the community has expectations that and we used to call them nursing homes so i think they expect if they come into a nursing home while we have nurses there i think they expect it to be more hospital level care than perhaps it it is um and we're funded quite differently from hospitals and we think this is the community debate that we have to have around what is it that we expect aged care to deliver and then how is it that we're going to fund it as a community
0: Mm. at this point pat i should point out i think you were former uh, advisor to Mitch Fifield on, was. on some some of these issues yeah and and um, during that time you know the home care system was brought mm. into place at, at, it, obviously the, be, the best place for most uh, elderly people if they can is to be in their own home um,
3: absolutely and oh no sorry you go
0: how does that tell me about how the system works and why it works uh, better than you know compa- systems in other countries
3: so there's two types of support you can get when you're in home uh, when you're living at home. Uh, so there's a program called the Commonwealth Home Support Program, which is actually how things like Meals on Wheels get funded and a little bit of domestic assistance. Uh, one of the things we did with Minister Firefield, that was a particularly good initiative was what with what we call home care packages. Uh, which is um, anything from around $10,000 to $50,000 a year that's provided to support people at home who are assessed as needing that level of support. And one of the changes that was made during that time was the funding used to go um, just to the provider. Uh, A consumer would be assessed as needing a package and they would have to travel around and try and find someone who had a package that could give them what they needed. The change that Minister Fifield made and and the government made at that time was to say that the package actually belonged to the person. Um, So in the system now you're assessed, you're told that you've got a package at a particular dollar value, and then you can take your package to a provider that you like um, and ask them to deliver the care for you. We're seeing that's had a big impact for particularly um, multicultural services, or particular types of services people are looking for, they're able to go, if you're an Italian-speaking person, you can go to an Italian service. Um, And also, if they have to move or they're not happy with the service, they can pick up that package and move it to a provider they're happy with. So it made it much more consumer-focused and much more flexible for people that they had more control over what was happening to them. And we think, even though I represent a provider body, we actually think that's the appropriate way for it to be, that consumers and older people and families should have as much control and be able to move and get the services that they want.
0: Well, Pat, congratulations to you and to the sector you represent for really, I mean, this was a a big test. Look, it's not over yet and and, and no. there's a lot of work to be done. Um, we should just talk about that very briefly. The, the, the threat doesn't go away, does it? Because no. you, there's a sort of incubator effect if, if the virus unfortunately comes into a nursing home it can spread quickly and of course you've got people who are uniquely vulnerable.
3: It's a really terrible outcome so we have to you know double down as we start to talk about coming out of um, isolation and lockdown and it's back you know we're back in the community. Uh, We know some countries have seen a secondary spike so we have to be really careful with everything that we do now. Uh, The Prime Minister announced today that there's development of a code which we are working on with um, COTA and others who are concerned about families not being able to come in as easily um, as they used to be Um, and obviously we understand that's very distressing for families so we're now trying to work through uh, a bit of a code and a national approach that balances what we need to do and and recognises that providers are on the ground and they understand what they need to do to keep people well. Um, but that we need to look at how we um, work in so that we keep both people healthy, um, but where there are real reasons and, and connections that need to be had, that we can support that as well.
0: Yeah, well, this is a big ask, isn't it? Not just of the aged care homes, but of the uh, the elderly, uh, senior Australians themselves who who are having to you know, take extra measures, possibly That's suffer wrong. more isolation. What can we mm-hmm. do to support them during this? How um, we- look,
3: I think we should keep we should keep connected um, to um, the elderly people in our lives who are important to us, or a neighbour who might need support. And I guess what we're asking um, the community to do too with residential care is to understand a little bit about the position that we're in, um, and why we're doing what why we're doing what we're doing, and that we're working really hard to keep people uh, well. And um, we're trying our best to manage those two competing priorities of of putting health first and keeping COVID out of residential care facilities while allowing people to come in and and see their loved ones. We're working really hard at that. And we're sort of asking for people to to give us some understanding. Um, We have had some instances where staff have been abused. And it's a very difficult time. We understand people are distressed, but we're all working together to try and make sure that um, we don't end up in the situation that we've seen overseas which has been really dreadful
0: thank you pat thanks for joining us and we look forward to here catching up with you on the progress of this and more about the royal commission as it goes on thank you I'd
3: love to come back and talk again
0: thanks for having me thank you well there's the message from pat skype skype your granny skype or facetime your granny after this, uh, don't do it until half past eight, by the way, because we're going through to that. I'll be doing it. I'll be doing it now. Look, we, we've been on the on that subject. Uh, we, we, the great thing about this, doing things this way, we've discovered is we're getting people from all over Australia, parts of Australia where we can't normally take events very easily, or people who can't get to events, joining us, even from around the world. I mean, no, there's. Uh, I'm told there's somebody tuning in tonight from Dibden purlieu in uh, Hampshire, which is. Uh, Coincidentally, where my mother lives. But anyway, uh, we'll leave that. Uh, uh, but uh, this this is free content, we've, we've told you. Uh, and we're going to keep it that way because it's important that as many people can watch as possible. Let me just tell you a bit about what we've been doing in the last week. I first of all want to, to say a big thank you to some of you who uh, were very generous in donating uh, last week so that we can invest in better equipment some of which you see in action tonight uh, and some which marvelously I, I, I delighted to say is made in Australia this microphone here by road made in Australia and it is you know the blank for this sort of activity in podcasting right now we've got a mixing desk over there wills on the mixing desk uh, which is black magic that's made in Australia too and, and it's very hard to get hold of them we've only just got ours today because there's such state- to the art things that's what Australian business is doing uh and if you would like to you know support this work in any way I think the best way you could do it is to subscribe to the Menzies Research Center for just10 dollars a month that will go to support this work and um, just coming up the screen now how you do that you can uh, support us uh, that way and uh, and we, we can uh, just click on Menzies uh, menziesRC.org slash subscribe one. There we go, and you'll get to us right away. Um, and I'll just revisit that, that website address later. So uh, uh, thanks for those who subscribed last week, by the way. This has been tremendously encouraging for us. And uh, if it wasn't for you, we, we, we wouldn't be so enthusiastic in keeping this going. Now, I do think um, we probably have Bjorn Lomborg on the line. Bjorn, uh, Bjorn Lomborg is, of course, the president of the Copenhagen Consensus, of think tank, uh, which is uh, which looks, I think, for very rational and, and value for money solutions to some of the big problems we've been facing, principally climate change, but other things as well. Uh, Bjorn uh, wrote recently about Earth Day, uh, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which is uh, the birthplace of uh, deep green environmentalism, I think. Uh, Bjorn, are you, uh, welcome to Water Cooler Live. It's delightful to have you want? I first go to ask, ask
2: where are you? Where are you? Hey, Nick. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm in Sweden. I'm in southern Sweden right now.
0: Terrific. We, 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 I, I had a chance to spend some quality time with you in uh, in February, I think, when you were over here. Yep. Um. And we we saw the worst of Australia. Well, the the, the best of Australian <laughs> climate, if you like it. I remember we drove down to Canberra in the pouring rain. I could hardly stay on the road. Absolutely. I was, yep. in the back. Um. But we were talking then about uh, a project which we'll talk about later. But you wrote recently about uh, Earth Day in the Australian, um, and it, you know, whether that was the birth of the of the deep green environmental movement. Something was changing around that time fifty years ago, wasn't it? About our approach to the world and how we saw things.
2: Well, I actually tend to think of this as a as a great success story, and that was also what I what I wrote. Look. Fifty years ago, when the first Earth Day uh, rolled around, this was mainly a U.S. phenomenon, but the focus on environment uh, was uh, surely uh, all across the developed world. And that was all good because what it basically told us was there's something wrong when rivers catch fires and when you can't really see anything, Uh, you know, you're just uh, uh, drenched in smog. Clearly, you need to do something about that. And that was the attention that we got back then. There was an other thing that also happened. That's, I think, the the sort of deep green uh, concern that you're talking about. Uh, Because if you go back and look at what they were actually talking about, yes, they were talking about air pollution, water pollution, but they were also talking about a lot of other stuff, and mostly about how the world was essentially going to end Yeah, they disagreed a little bit is it going to end in five years or maybe 10 or 15 or you know some of the optimists thought it was only going to be in 30 years the whole world would uh uh, basically disintegrate Uh, and of course now we know most of those worries were entirely unfounded but it doesn't take away from the fact that we've actually been tremendously successful in dealing with the most important environmental issues which is air and water And air, particularly, kills lots and lots of people. We still estimate it kills somewhere between four and seven million people every year, mostly in developing countries, mostly actually from indoor air pollution, the fact that people are just too poor uh, to cook and keep warm with modern fuels and instead use wood, dung, cardboard, whatever they can find there, uh, lay their hands on and leave their environments incredibly polluted. So fundamentally, Earth Day is an incredible success. It shows if you focus on an issue, we can solve it, and we actually have a much, much better environment.
0: Yeah, and, and the, the the role of human ingenuity and innovation in that is important, isn't it? Because exactly. the message from the Greek, deep green environmentalists all the time is that mankind is the problem. You know, we could we could just somehow take ourselves off the planet; everything would be okay. And yet, I think you're right. You look over that timescale, how much life has improved for most people on the planet because of technology. It's huge, isn't it?
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, look, if we took humans off the, uh, off the earth, surely we wouldn't be a problem anymore. But I think a lot of people would have uh, an objection to that. And that's, of course, why we need to recognize if we're going to fix these issues smartly, we need to deal with them through ingenuity. Uh, again, if you look back in the uh, 1950s, 60s, uh, Los Angeles was an entirely smog ridden. Uh, And and one simple argument would be to simply say, I'm sorry, you can't drive, you just gotta get off the road. That's a simple argument and a simple way to deal with this, but of course also entirely politically uh, impossible. What we actually did was we invented the catalytic converter, which meant that we could drive, we can even drive more, and have a much, much cleaner environment. Those are the kinds of ways where we can actually help, and that's what we've seen across the world. You know, back in the 1970s, people worried that we were way too many people that we wouldn't be able to feed them, and the argument somehow was, well, we should get rid of a lot of these people. But the reality was, of course, we managed to get a green revolution that meant we could feed a lot more people on every hectare, which means that we now actually have a lot more space for environment, and we can actually feed most people much, much better.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, in Australia, I must say, look, brag for a moment to, to, to you in Sweden, we've played our part in this, you know, the, the technology that's gone into agriculture here, particularly using GPS and other methods has just increased production quite considerably, and, and that's, that's the pattern, isn't it? When, when, when it looks like we're running out of something, you somehow find a way to
2: deal with it. And, and that, of course, also goes to the current environmental problems that we have, which is mostly on, on, on climate change. A lot of people tell us, no, no, we've got to have the same sort of solutions as we had back in the 1970s. Let's do with less. So Sup- perhaps not surprisingly, that is not a very attractive opportunity. Uh, you know, if you ask most people, uh, if you look around the Corona ravaged landscape that we have right now, ha- dealing with less is not something that most people want. You want to be able to have more, but less Uh, uh, problems with the environment. And that's exactly what technology does. Uh, Look, for instance, to the US, uh, they started uh, fracking back in in around 2000, in some ways already in the 1970s. This was not at all intended as a climate policy. It was mostly intended as a way to get much, much more fossil fuels. But what it did was fracking was a technology it probably cost about $10 billion, but it meant that you got access to much, much cheaper, especially gas and because gas emits half as much as coal in CO2 per energy unit, the US is the country this decade that has cut its carbon emissions the most of any country around the world. Not mostly because of renewables or any other climate policy, but mostly because they made green technology cheaper. Now, it's gas, it's still a fossil fuel, and eventually they'll have to phase that out, but it shows you what you can do with technology. If it's cheaper, Obviously, everyone will embrace it if it's more expensive. It becomes really hard to just get a few people to embrace it.
0: Yeah, and yet uh, there are some in the environmental movement that impose fracking and, and gas in general because they say, well, it's not, you know, it's not one hundred percent renewable. There's still emissions. It seems to me, you know, we we sometimes we're in danger of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, aren't it? You know, I mean, we can reduce this by degrees in the ways we have the technology to do it. We don't have to get to zero right away, do we?
2: Well, we're not going to get to zero right away. Uh, The the fundamental problem with much of of the uh, green movement, both in climate, but also if you look back in the last 50 years, is that they somehow have this idea of, well, if we imagine a wonderful, beautiful, perfect world, then we're done. And I'm only going to settle for that. Well, those kinds of perfect worlds don't happen. We're not going to get to zero anytime soon. Your neighbors, uh, uh, New Zealand, have, uh, have promised to go carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, I think two untold stories that should be told. Uh, one of them is, of course, they were actually the first nation to promise to go carbon neutral uh, back in 2008. Uh, and they promised to go carbon neutral by 2020. Of course, they entirely missed that target. They're now at 123% of what they were back in 2008 when they made the promise. Uh, But now they've re-promised to do so in 2050. Uh, And uh, much to their credit, they've actually asked their eminent uh, economic institution to find out, how much is this going to cost us? And the simple answer is, it is going to cost 16% of New Zealand's GDP by 2050. And not for one year, for every year for the rest of the century. Uh, so over the uh, the century, this will probably cost every New Zealander about somewhere between uh, 12,500 US dollars and 25,000 US dollars per person per year. And, and even this will and this will re- reduce uh, uh, carbon emissions so much that New Zealand by itself will postpone global warming by three weeks by the end of the century. It is simply an incredibly costly policy to achieve almost nothing.
0: Do you think, I mean, that's, uh, that policy looks less attractive now than when it was announced, it? I mean, we've, got, we've now got oh, of course. Uh, the possibility yeah. of a, a global recession here. I mean, New Zealand's uh, GDP like ours is going to uh, shrink uh, without even trying. So do you think that post COVID-19, or in this environment of, of, uh, of global recession, as we're trying to get ourselves out of it, the debate will change? Will we get more realistic, do you think, on these things? <laughs>
2: It's hard to know. Uh, I think a lot of people, and we've seen this historically when when uh, times are tough, people are much, much less likely to spend resources on frivolous things. Uh, and you know, uh, spending uh, thousands of dollars of cutting a ton of CO2 by subsidizing inefficient electric cars is just simply frivolous. You could do a lot more good, even if you just care about cutting carbon emissions, by just simply reducing the smartest, cheapest way through the many uh, 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 exchanges that are around the world where cutting a ton of carbon costs maybe $6 or maybe $30 or somewhere in between. So fundamentally, we're gonna do a lot less stupid stuff. That's great. I also think that Corona more than anything else will teach us this thing that we haven't really understood when we've talked about climate. Namely, that while climate is a problem and it's a problem we need to solve, climate policies are also costly and also something that we want to minimize. So there's a cost to climate, but there's also a cost to climate policy. What we're seeing now with Corona is essentially the same thing. There is a definite, a huge cost to Corona, but there's also a definite and huge cost to Corona policies. And we need to find some way to balance these two. And we haven't had that conversation. I suspect as we get corona more under uh under control we're going to start having much more of a conversation did we actually end up spending too much money too much recession on getting too little benefit from corona and that kind of discussion which i also happen to think is correct will definitely be useful when we start talking about how do we make a smart climate policy because it has the same ingredients we need to balance the cost of doing something with the cost of actually implementing these policies to achieve something.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about the COVID crisis. We haven't had a chance to talk about this, by the way, but I, I suspected your perspective is always where can we do most good and least harm, you know? So uh, that approach, you bring that to this, it's, it's a devilishly difficult problem to deal with, isn't it? You know, that of course, you know, we have to reduce the public health threat, the threat that our beds are, you know, hospitals get overcrowded, but at the same time, we've got to... Uh, do our best to stop the economy uh, falling to pieces. And I think, you know, there are other welfare factors that come into this, aren't there? You know, people locked at home, mental health issues. Um, and I uh, see in Britain that the, people, the treatment of cancer patients is down, for instance. It's this trade off, isn't it? That's very often not understood in uh, public policy.
2: Well, there's certainly a trade off. And I think we haven't had that conversation well uh, yet. So, first of all, COVID is a real and a substantial problem, and it's very likely that a moderate uh, 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 social distancing, so about 40% reduction in people's interactions, is a good idea. It's not a fantastic idea, but it's a good policy. Uh, So, the first and quite uh, right now, the only period published uh, cost benefit analysis for the US indicates that, with rather optimistic assumptions, it is a good idea to moderately socially distance. This is for two reasons. Partly because if you moderately socially distance, you can still go to work, you can still have school, but you will reduce your other interactions dramatically. It will uh, significantly reduce the number of dead. It'll more than half the number of dead. It turns out that it costs probably for the US about $7 trillion to achieve a benefit, mostly in avoided deaths, of about $12 trillion. That's a good deal. So spending $7 trillion in more recession, but saving so many lives that it's worth what we normally think of as 12 trillion is a good idea. But that's not what most countries have done. What most countries have done is go straight to an extreme lockdown, basically shut down schools, shut uh, much work, and see a much, much bigger recession. Now, the benefit of that is that you save even more lives. You save less additional lives, but you do save more lives but you also get a much, much bigger recession. And the real problem here of course is, and I think this is the one thing that has been severely undercounted the Imperial College model, all these other models tell us very clearly, if you lock down, you totally suppress the number of people who get sick. That's wonderful, nobody dies, but you have to keep at it for the next one, two, three years until you have a vaccine or a treatment. So fundamentally, you're asking people to do something that is very unlikely to work for two or three years. You know, you've seen most people go stir crazy after a couple of weeks. Certainly a couple of months seems to be the extent that you can realistically lock down an economy hard. And so what you end up doing is essentially you're just pushing out the number of dead because what you will get is a second and third wave that'll kill almost as many. This is what we see in the models. So the reality here is you need to find a way that is sustainable in the long run. And I'm, I'm right now in Sweden, and I would argue that Sweden in many ways have done exactly what the epidemiologists are telling us, namely the trick to dealing with an infection like COVID is to lower or flatten the curve as we've heard, lower the infection rate so that it's below the capacity of the healthcare system. So fundamentally, you can give good treatment to everyone. That's what Sweden has done. But what you've done in countries of lockdown is you've actually seen them go, go way below. So, you know, the, the, uh, the former chief economist of Denmark, for instance, worries that we're now seeing way too few, as he says, way too few uh, instances of infection. So what you're essentially having is a system where the healthcare system is very little used and you still have all the costs. So you're not building up any sort of resistance. You're not getting people eventually infected. You're simply just biding your time. Unless you believe you can do that for years on end, you're probably making a big policy mistake.
0: Yeah, well, I think you're right. The big lesson out of this is is you have to look at policies uh, altogether, not just focus on one, which brings me, I think, to why you were, the main reason you were in Australia earlier this year was you're working on your way to New Zealand to work on a a project uh, about uh, aid to the Pacific Islands and because uh, we've we've given a lot of money and, and other countries have been generously giving money to the Pacific Islands to deal with, uh, you know, the threat of climate
2: change. But there's been consequences to that in other areas, haven't there? Tell me about it. Yeah, well, so I actually talked about this both in Australia and New Zealand, and you're both uh, great donors to the Pacific. So the idea that we've done, and the think tank that I work for, the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, we worked for the last five years with a lot of different countries of so Bangladesh, India, uh, Haiti, we're now doing uh, work in Ghana, we're moving on to uh, Malawi uh, uh, this year, looking at where can you spend a dollar and do the most good. Remember, as you have pointed out many times, you can only spend the dollar one once. And if you spend it on poor policies or only okay policies, you're essentially neglecting spending on really, really effective policies. We should have that same conversation in the Pacific. Uh, as you point out, a lot of policies in the Pacific go to helping the Pacific with climate impacts. Look, climate is a real danger in the Pacific. But if you ask most people in the Pacific, it's not their main priority. Their main priority is to get food and to get good food, to get jobs, to get good education, to deal with the obesity challenge in many places, to deal with the many, many of the other social problems. And the funny or the slightly depressing thing is there are many policies that could do much more good for every dollar spent. And so maybe we should have that conversation in the Pacific with the Pacific nations, starting with what do they want to see focused so that Australia and New Zealand would have a better chance to actually spend your many development dollars in the places that would do the most good. So what we've done is we work with tons of of the top economists On I have handy, just one of the folders, this is the one that we did for the world, uh, where we basically have, you know, uh, summaries of all the different analyses across a wide range of different areas. So, you know, within education or health, but certainly also environment and many other things, then we basically do cost benefit analyses. So what we show is for each one of the proposals, we show how much will it cost, How much good will it do? And then we show what's the bang for the buck. The longer lines show really large amounts of bang for the buck. The shorter lines show very little bang for your buck. And so this idea would simply be to say, let's have that conversation for the Pacific, both for the spending from Australia and New Zealand, but also, of course, within those nations to ask, where can you spend a dollar or whatever your currency is and do the very most good? We should have that conversation because at the end of the day, that means our development dollars will do a lot more good, their own spending in Vanuatu or all the other places will do a lot more good. And fundamentally, it'll lead to much better development.
0: I, I must ask you this uh, the, about the new Michael Moore documentary, which has gone viral in Australia, by the way. I mean, a lot of people have watched it and, and fascinated by the fact that Michael Moore has directed a, a documentary, you know, a person very solidly from the left that, that uh, nonetheless is, is, you know, Exposes some of the holes in renewable energy and our whole approach to uh, climate change. Have you had a chance to watch it yet, Bjorn?
2: Unfortunately, no. I, I've seen a, a lot of the commentary, and a, of course, a lot of people are very, very angry. Uh, uh, the one thing I, that I saw that I'm, I'm somewhat reserved about is that he actually states that you know, for many of these uh, interventions, you know, the energy that goes into a uh, wind turbine or a solar panel is bigger than what it, it'll end up producing. That's just not true. I I think there's a lot of problems with renewables. uh, And I think we need to be careful, if you will, both on the propaganda on the left that just tells you, oh, it's so cheap, but ignores that it's only cheap when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. Uh, But likewise, we should also be wary of the other sort of argument, oh, it doesn't work, or it's just, it's all scrap. There's a lot of problems with renewables. But fundamentally, the problem is that in an integrated economy where you want to have access to energy 24-7 we still don't have the technology to achieve that and so when you talk about that it's cheaper when the sun is shining you're ignoring the fact that it's not only not cheaper when the sun is not shining it's infinitely costly and so what you need is backup uh, uh, for instance from uh, uh, gas breakers or other uh, other fossil fuel opportunities and those actually make it a lot more expensive so you know when you, when you casually show, sure, uh, uh, solar is, is cheaper in some places where it's very sunny uh, when the sun is shining. Uh, but if you look at it with batteries, it actually becomes a lot more expensive. We need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about the fact that we don't know how to get the world to zero right now, except for the sort of Corona kind of uh, uh, solution that we've seen that I think nobody wants. And so the reality is, We need to get back to and that was what we where we started we need to get back to human ingenuity if we want to fix climate like most other problems in the world we need to focus a lot more on human ingenuity if we can make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels genuinely cheaper everyone will switch you don't need a paris agreement or anyone else you know sort of twisting everybody's arm to you know make very costly promises everyone will just Stream towards that, and of course, for for uh, for Corona, it's exactly the same. We need to spend a lot more on innovation to get those vaccines that will eventually make it possible for us to go back to the world as it was before. Innovation is always going to be the chief answer to most problems.
0: Here here to that. Well, thank you, Bob, for joining us, and uh, I love this technology. I mean, we we it was a long time between visits here, and we always love to hear from you. So hopefully, we'll be able to do that a little bit more now. We've been discovering the, the, the another piece of innovation that works for us. Thank you very much. All the best to you and your work, thank and, you. and uh, we look forward to hearing from you again soon. Um, now, uh, where are we? Your looks frozen. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, look, uh, that, that's Water Cooler Live for this week. Uh, as I've been saying a few times, uh, you can subscribe to the Menzies Research Centre at www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. Uh, one but in case you didn't get that we're going to try and use some technology to text you uh right away so you'll get that link through just click through if you're not a subscriber uh and i look forward to seeing you next week we'll have more uh um, good guests on from not just australia but around the world next week uh we'll be talking about those as the week goes ahead but uh, just make a note in your diary uh 7 30 p.m next wednesday for the next water cooler live